Kelly Sue Connick once said, For hard resets, conventions and conferences can be inspiring. This is Save vs. Ranked. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about my experiences at Gen Con. Alright, so Jeremy attended Gen Con this year, and if you're not aware, Gen Con is the game convention held annually in Indianapolis. It was started by Gary Gygax, the inventor, uh, co-inventor of Dungeons and & Dragons, and it is named for Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is where it was originally held. In our first season, we had a mini-episode about Gen Con, which mostly ended up being about what you should do if you are attending a gaming convention, especially one of this size. This episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the specifics of what goes on at Gen Con. So, let's go in. We're just going to do this kind of chronologically for what I did at the convention. I have a bunch of stuff here that I'm going to be throwing at John and going, Hey, cool, look at this game. Look at this game. All right. So, uh, the big thing about Gen Con is that they have a huge vendor hall. Almost every major game publisher has a booth in this vendor hall. This year, it took up the entirety of the convention center, plus it went into kind of a play area. They, they extended it. Uh, they extended it down and you could get into the main vendor hall from this play area. And uh, I actually really like that because there was more uh, there was more place to just sit down and play the games before you go and buy them. Now, that's actually uh, pretty great because um, I know that there was kind of a dearth of places to play right around the vendor hall last time I attended the convention. Uh, there, you know, there were some options, but as far as it was concerned, I mean, there were people out on the floor with their new games and stuff, playing them like pretty much right in the hallways. So that actually sounds like a pretty good uh, addition. I quite enjoyed it. It also gives you an area where that's not quite as loud. The vendor hall gets very congested, very warm, very loud, and it's hard to really gauge your expectations of a game from that experience. One of the games that I bought on my way into the vendor hall was a game called Raccoon Tycoon. I bought the game almost solely because it had a cute name. I mean, that's, sometimes that's all it takes, but uh, the art actually looks pretty awesome too. Yeah, all of the characters are are different animals, but they're they're dressed up as uh, different like different barons in the uh, in the late 1800s. And I really imagine them sitting there going, oh my goodness, there's quite an uprising in the factory. I guess we have to chain them to the machines again. Because, you know, they're all horrible, terrible people. <laughs> I, I thought they were chaining them to the machines because they're like, you know, dogs and they're, you know, being, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, this year I went in with a specific goal. I wasn't going to buy a bunch of new, a bunch of games that came out this year. I was specifically looking for games that filled the four to seven player range. I have a number of games that work really well at large group sizes. Uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, that that size. I also have a bunch of games that work at four and below. Yeah, one to four is like the most common range of player numbers for games, but it's that in-between range that's you know, usually difficult to fill. You've got large party games on one side and people make those all the time, and then you've got the regular small one to four player games games on the other side so what are you gonna do so the first game that i got to fit this specific niche was a little game called we're doomed 
Now, I was walking in the vendor hall, and I just see all these people sitting around with these name placards in front of them, and a big sand timer, a 15-minute sand timer with bright orange sand just going, as they're going, okay, well, I'll contribute to the rocket. I'll contribute to the rocket. Oh, well, I'm not going to. Okay, and they're all going around and uh, talking, and then someone picked up a card and goes, oh, well, I'm sorry, guys, apparently the lizard overlords are now playing the game. And I was sold. I was immediately (laughs) sold. We're Doomed is about the Earth being destroyed. The the Earth is completely doomed, and everyone's building a rocket to get off the Earth. Well, in this game, there are a bunch of different things that could happen for why the Earth is doomed, or things that could sabotage the building of the rocket to save everyone. Yeah, we've gotten a chance to play this once since you got back from Gen Con. Obviously, it's uh, one of those games that really does warrant uh, additional plays, but... In that first game experience, I, uh, I I felt like it, it was kind of a chaotic sort of thing. And what was great about it is that it is constrained to this 15-minute limit. So no matter how weird or badly the game turns out, you've played for 15 minutes by the end of it, and it's okay. It's one of those games that starts out with very simple mechanics and then builds up to something more. So I pretty much digged it. The biggest problem that I have with it is that it doesn't have a ton of strategy. But, once again, it's a 15-minute long game. You don't need a lot of strategy. A lot of times, there's just a lot of hectic action, and people going, Ah! Do something! Do something! Do something! And someone sitting there smugly going, No! The next game that I got was from Greater Than Games. It's a game called Medium. Now... I really enjoy the the trend that uh, gaming seems to be taking for group games to be trying to give us this weird psyops program. Uh, there was the mind last year where you just have to try and sync up your internal clock with your your friends. This year, the game Medium. I, I guess it's really best to describe how this game works. You play down a card that says something like airport, and your partner plays down a card that says something like owl. And on the count of three, you have to say the word that can that uh, intersects the two. In this case, it would be like flying. I've played this now uh, two times with uh, two different groups, and it is amazing how sometimes people will immediately go, oh yeah, th- this is simple, this is easy, and get one, one or two immediate hits, and then for the rest of the game be unable to come up with something that, go- that links snow and red. Uh, uh, Santa Claus? Presents. Lights? Oh god, what? In my play experience, it's easy to get those early victories and then feel smug about it, and then suddenly realize that everything you're doing is wrong from there on out. The only real problem with it is the base game doesn't have a lot of a lot for people to do in the downtime. In a bigger game, the play goes around the group of people, and if it's not your turn, you are sitting there doing nothing. There are a few cards in the game that let you do things when it is not your turn, but those aren't recommended for your first time playing the game. Now, the game that I was actually most interested in is a game called Decrypto. Now, It didn't come out this year. I think it came out either last year or the year before. And it feels kind of like Password by way of code names. You're attempting to convey a number to uh, your team via a series of word association clues without being so specific that the opposing team finds out what 
what words you have on this little what what are those the 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 thing that you where uses a, a red filter to uh, reveal words I, th- that has a specific name does it yeah i i want to know what that specific name is now i'm going to have to look that up at some point but yeah the the like uh, red word decoders yeah and it it feels a bit like a hacky late 70s early 80s spy thriller type game and it's kind of fun when you're when you're sitting there with a list of words that are ice, tower, whale, and uh, and running, and you're all sing and you're sitting there going, okay, how are all of those words connected? And one of your teammates goes, oh, their their word is water. That's clearly the word water. And you're sitting there, and your mind just kind of explodes. <laughs> it, it was an interesting game. I remember uh, I, I got to the uh, party a little late, so I was just kind of uh, watching the game and trying to figure out what everyone's words were. And I, I got about 50% on both sides. It's uh, it's interesting to see the way that people manage to obfuscate their words. Now, aside from the vendor hall at Gen Con, there are a lot of other events. You can go and sign up to play games. You can go and play True Dungeon. I I didn't do True Dungeon this year. I know a lot of people who did. Uh, You can do a number of seminars to find out all sorts of information that's going on in the gaming hobby, and it's, it's great. Most disappointingly was the seminar How to Freelance for Onyx Path. Now, I'm not a great writer, but I wanted to know exactly what was what was expected to become a freelancer for Onyx Path. I'm a big fan of the World of Darkness, and they're the people who are publishing the World of Darkness stuff right now. And when I got in there, it was mostly a seminar of them saying, go to our website, there's a, uh, there's a freelance submission guide on the website, follow that guide. And they just said that over and over and over, and that felt, I don't know, it feels like if your seminar can be reduced to a flyer, that you might not need a seminar. On that same token, I almost feel like, given the way people respond to having information placed directly in front of them and right out in the open, the seminar might be warranted. There might be someone who left that seminar going, Oh, that's how I freelance for Onyx Path. I go to the website and I read the information. Got it. Yeah, I don't know. I was I was feeling a bit talked down to. That said, there was one interesting bit, which I I will share here. The most interesting thing they said was, if you want to freelance, don't send in stuff that they've seen before. If you're pitching to freelance for them and you send in yet another bloodline for vampire, they're... Their eyes are going to glaze over. They're just going to go, okay, whatever. So you have to be really, really, really amazing to catch their attention with that. That said, if you're a person of color, a woman, someone with a disability, uh, someone with a different point of view, they really want you to uh, freelance for them. As, as someone who's not necessarily a great writer, I think that this was more of a, a barrier to entry for me, this uh, write 500 words of mechanics, 500 words of prose. I think I might be able to get 500 words total on all of my thoughts on World of Darkness total. That said, there was uh, there were a number of other seminars that I went to that were very enlightening. I went to one that was hosted by two actual lawyers, and it was all about 
patents, copyrights, trademarks, and all of that stuff, and specifically how it pertains to the gaming community. A lot of people know about the uh, about Magic the Gathering's patent, which, by the way, has expired at this point, and how turning a card 90 degrees to the right and calling it tapping was not allowed. You were not, you were not allowed to turn a card 90 degrees to the right to show that it was being used up until, uh, I want to say, 2003? 2013? I don't know. I can't count years. I genuinely don't understand how that didn't fail the obviousness test for patenting because a patent has to be an activity that is not obvious. But, uh, you know, I, I guess one could argue that, you know, there aren't a lot of games that exist where you turn a card 90 degrees to demonstrate that it's been used. Moreover, at the time, there weren't a lot, there weren't any collectible card games. That was an idea that that was come up with by uh, Richard Garfield. And m- most games at the time were, were board games with big pieces, not a uh, card game where you assembled all the uh, all the parts. And so I could I could definitely see how they got the the patent issued to them. Another seminar I went to was hosted by Panda Games Manufacturing, which for those of you who don't know is a Chinese manufacturer who specializes in manufacturing board games. And they have uh, a North American team that works with North American game designers to make board games. And as as someone who has recently made a board game and is working on a second board game, I kind of want to know what it took to uh, manufacture on my own. I also went to another seminar where they said, hey, if you're doing the self, if you're going the self-publishing route, make sure you know what you're doing before you go on Kickstarter because Kickstarter is a good way to lose a lot of money if you're not careful. I mean, if you promised to send 1,000 people a board game and the first run of the board game comes back and everything's uh, everything's wrong, you can't send that out to people on on Kickstarter. They'll they'll go, this isn't what I backed, this isn't what I promised was promised. And so you might have to go through two or three or four print runs to get everything right from China, unless you go through and uh, make sure you dot your I's, cross your T's, and make sure every single thing is absolutely perfect. That was the reason that uh, Panda Games Manufacturing said that's why we have a North American team, so that way there isn't even a language barrier there, and we can work with you up, up to the point where we actually get things printed. I think one of my favorite seminars I went to was titled... Fear in Nonfiction, Agrarian Anxiety in the Color Out of Space. Oh, right, yeah. Our friend Tony, he gave a lecture on, it was the color out of space, right? That's what he uh, wrote his uh, master's thesis on, if I recall. Yeah, I remember reading that. It was, uh, was kind of interesting because what it drove home was that the color out of space was above all about the sort of the agrarian anxiety experienced by the people in New England by the encroachment of society. And as such, the color itself represented the unknowable in my modernization that encroaches and takes over the uh, land and livelihood of the rural folk, right? That that is a very very good way of summarizing the uh, of summarizing the seminar. Now he had a full hour to go oh, yeah. into all of this, and it's almost like he spent eight years researching this because he was incredibly knowledgeable about it. I think probably the, the best part for me was that Tony and his and his wife Bethany stayed with uh, me and my girlfriend that night. They they uh, stayed in our hotel room and then uh, went to Gen Con the next day. So I got to pick his brain the whole night about uh, all of this stuff before I had actually 
read his master's thesis. Uh, once again, that is Fear and Nonfiction, Agrarian Anxiety in the Color Out of Space. If you want to, you can go online and download the whole thing. It's a free PDF. And so if, if that seems to pique your interest, uh, go right ahead. I'm, I'm sure that the college that uh, where he uh, publishes would love to see a bunch of ran, random downloads from across the country and go, okay, wait, why, why are people looking into this? This seems incredibly niche. And vaguely apocalyptic, so I mean, that could explain why people are looking into it. But anyway, um, after that, what, what, other, uh, what other things did you do there? Well, I went and played a game of Blood on the Clock Tower. Oh, yeah, you've been really eager about Blood on the Clock Tower. Blood on the Clock Tower is a new, uh, still upcoming, right? Uh, it is still upcoming. The The Kickstarter has ended at this point, but they're in the manufacturing process, and I believe that uh, the fulfillment should happen in January. Right, it's a social deduction game. We've already talked about social deduction games, but uh, it's pretty unique in that there are no pure vanilla roles in it. Everybody has some sort sort of ability or something going on for them even if it's purely a detrimental thing and there and there ends up being a lot going on we've already uh play tested a prototype version of it yep the the version that we play tested was just the base set of it the kickstarter version has three sets plus a bunch of add-on roles that are coming and I, i'm really looking forward to talking about that at some point but I, I got got to sit down got to play the game got to play a social deduction game with people I've never met, which is really weird. Like, when you're playing a social deduction game with friends, you often go, oh, no, I I know his tick. I know his tell. He can't lie at all. Yeah, our our other friend Tony was even saying a little while ago that a big part of social deduction games is just you find out how your friends lie. So I I sat there and I, I got to play this game and it was a lot of fun. But then I got to sit around and talk with uh, with the storyteller, the people who were running the game, and asking about what their preferred method of uh, running the game is, what, what their preferred combinations to throw into the game are. And they, they actually told me a, a few good ones. I'm not going to uh, talk about it too much here, but I, I'm definitely looking forward to the next time I get to play this game. Oh, man. Let's see. what What's all the other stuff that... I, I have just a bunch of stuff sitting here, so let me... Uh... Yeah, let's just, let's just go down the list, shall we? All right. So, I, ha- I bought a game called Undo. Now, there were three versions of this. I, I have just this one sitting here. I have the other two at home. And I bought it because I was wandering around the vendor hall, and someone hands me a pack of cards and goes, Here's a preview of our game Undo. It's completely free. And I took it, and I turned it over, and I read it, and it said, A person has died. You are a fate weaver. Your goal is to go back in time and undo their fate. That sounds fun. That's different. And I'm a big fan of a bunch of... Uh, of a number of the Escape the Room board games, and heck, even the old Escape the Room Flash games on Newgrounds. And this seemed ex- like the exact type of thing, Have, having to uh, unravel this story, find out what happened, come up with some interesting uh, leaps in logic. Unfortunately, uh, this game says it is for two to six. It's really for one person. This is a game that can be played entirely on your own. They they say in the rules that part of the fun of it is formulating theories with your friends in case they have other ideas. But I don't know. A lot of my friends will will often come up with uh, ideas and will all homogenize onto one uh, major theory. So so you're saying that like 
kind of the point is to have a diversity of viewpoints, but when it comes down to it in your play experience, everybody just clumps to one viewpoint anyway, so it doesn't really make a huge difference. Yeah, a lot of times it's, uh, I feel very much like it's the Holmes and Watson example where... Brilliant deduction, Holmes, how do you do it? Exactly. Uh, there'll be people that'll throw out an idea and everyone will go, nah, that's not right. Another idea, nah, that's uh, that's all right. Then one person goes, well, how about this? And everyone gloms onto that idea and goes, okay, that that's correct, whether it's correct or not. Another game I got, Thieves' Den. I got this game entirely based on the sales pitch of a guy yelling it from his booth. This is a drafting worker placement game. Huh. Yeah. Already kind of interested. Yeah, you are a master thief, and you are drafting different locations that are your hideouts. And the other master thieves are drafting locations where they're at, and then you can send your thieves into their locations to try and steal stuff. And eventually become, like, the big guild, uh, thieves guild boss. You know, it kind of makes me think of boss monster when you describe it that way. Is, Is there kind of a similarity there, or...? Not not especially. Where in bo- a boss monster, you are drawing and playing things from uh, your hand of cards. This one has a uh, drafting mechanic where you take one card and pass the rest. So there's always that, oh, what do I want someone else to have this card? Gotcha. So, so it does change the dynamic, but it's still, I'm building a layer and I'm attacking your layers, right? Uh, a, a little bit. Uh, I think... I think more, that it has more in common with Lords of Waterdeep. If Ooh, you've uh, if okay. you've ever played that one, that makes sense. Okay, so we only have a few a uh, few minutes left of this episode, so let me uh, go uh, go through a few other things. I picked up a book called Legendary Dragons by Jetpack Seven. Every year, I seek out their booth at Gen Con. They are a third-party uh, producer for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. The first year, I got a book that was about using real-world deities in Dungeons & Dragons. And what would happen if you had a cleric of, let's say, um... Thor. Vishnu. Um, this one has a bunch of... Uh, new wyverns, drakes, dragons, kobolds, uh, a bunch of named dragons with interesting backstories, like a dragon who had all of his scales removed by an evil wizard, and now has a bunch of dark dwarves forging him adamantine armor, and he is now a giant siege weapon for them. Or the half-shadow dragon, who is somewhere between life and death, and all sorts of other things like that. The most interesting things in here, though, are the dragon rider... Uh, class, which is, from everything I can tell, absolutely balanced with 5th edition, and a section on what you can do with all sorts of different dragon body parts. Now, we did mention a while back that we do like the idea of of harvesting the body parts of these monsters that you kill, and this has uh, a whole list of what you can get from different sized dragons. I mean, the fire-breathing gland in a uh, young red dragon is going to be a lot weaker than in a an uh, ancient red dragon. Right. And what spells you can augment with them, what what minor magical effects you can have from eating them, and all, and what you can expect to actually get from these different dragons. That sounds pretty great. Let's see. I got a bunch of... I I went and bought a bunch of magic cards because I, I love Magic the Gathering. I went to the Artist's Alley. If you ever get a chance, go to an Artist's Alley at any convention that you go to. It will be wonderful. And all in all, I had a wonderful, exhausting time. The last thing I do want to talk about, though, is I got a bunch of miniatures from Ark Knight Miniatures. Now, uh... 
Arknight.com, uh, they make clear flat pack miniatures, kind of like uh, what you'd get from a Paizo production and whatnot. But these are plastic. They have a front and back. And I noticed that I had seen them somewhere before. Right. Um, they look like the ones that come in the dungeon in a box. And that's what we're going to talk about next. Next time, we're going to talk about Dungeon in a Box. It's a loot box dungeon experience. We wanted to take a look at this and see, does it measure up? Does I mean, Paizo puts out month, monthly uh, adventures. Does a random uh, monthly adventure measure up to Paizo? Certainly worth taking a look, and we hope to be able to give you our review on it. So once again, this has been Save versus Rant. Thank you very much for listening. A vacation is what you take when you can no longer take what you've been taking. Earl Wilson Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.